Haymaking Days by John Stuttart. Chapter 22. Schoolmasters. Stedman was a black spot on an otherwise blameless school. An influx of new staff brought about a renaissance. Unluckily, it came along too late for Peter, but I was more fortunate. The new headmaster was a modern man, a mathematician with accountant-like efficiency. Nigel Talbot Rice, or NTR, was not popular with my mother. She thought him too smooth. She blamed him personally for Peter's difficulty with maths. But she was unfair. He was dragging the school out of a classical coma into the 20th century. He did it sensitively, deliberately trying to maintain all the benefits of classical teaching, but tempering it with practical usefulness for the modern world. Mum was beguiled by the former headmaster's aristocratic bearing and obvious superior academic learning. His name was Patrick Savage. For me, the name didn't suit him. He was a huge, quiet and kind bachelor, and there was something about the swing in his step which made us wonder about him. NTR was a married man with a daughter. He was installed into a new house that was built especially for him and his family in the grounds beside an enormous beech tree. The house was appropriately named Beach House and became the first boarding school home for the new bugs. Mrs. Talbot Rice cared for them tenderly. NTR had a military appearance. He spoke with the clipped tones of a British army officer. He wore blazers with brass buttons. We were awarded half-day holidays for three summers in a row as his second, third and fourth daughters were born. I left after that, wondering how long the Talbot Rices could keep this up. It was ironic that all these girls were born to the headmaster of a renowned boys-only school. The school staff respected him. Some, fondly aligned to the old order, accepted him begrudgingly but feared him certainly. Mum was friendly with two such masters. The first was the red-faced, overweight Porty, as he was fondly known. He was my bespectacled maths teacher. His nickname came from his last name, Porthouse, and suited him as it was only one letter short of Portly, which he surely was. He had little control over his classes. Boys would save clay from art classes for Porty's lessons. When he was writing on the board, we would flick little lumps at his blackboard, which stuck infuriatingly well. Who threw that? He would round at us in a fury. We all stared blankly back at him. He had none of Stedman's menace or cruelty. Sometimes he would be bombarded by ten or more lumps of clay. Only when the bombardment stopped would he turn around, for fear that he might actually catch a culprit and be forced to impose some sort of punishment. He was the only person I have ever met who took snuff. His nose would run rather horrifyingly with black liquid during the lessons, which he would soak up into a well-used hanky. I can't remember him ever sneezing. When his little tins were empty, he would hand them out to us. There was usually enough residual snuff to send us into sneezing fits. He wasn't a great teacher, but he was popular. As a fellow maths teacher, I'm sure NTR was aware of his shortcomings, 
and Porty left the school before I did. Porty's best friend was Mr. Williams. He was a dedicated history teacher. He would keep a cigarette burning throughout his classes with the ash mesmerizingly long. Mr. Williams had a temper, which made taunting him risky but thrilling. He would occasionally round on us and give us all a verbal barrage. But there was something about the way that he would then continue as if nothing had happened that made us trust him not to put us in any real danger. He was a devotee of his field. He paced up and down in the centre of his classroom between the rows of desks, entranced in his own monologues. It was possible to walk behind, imitating him, hunched, head down, hands behind his back. As he turned, one could also turn, apparently out of sight. Either he had no peripheral vision, or his underlying good nature chose to ignore us. Williams left not long after Porty. They were friends of Mum. Having dropped us off, Mum used to go over to their apartments to have a sherry with them. When I was very young, the fact that Mum was still on school premises made me feel cosy for a while. I would deliberately stay awake as long as I could in the hopes of one final farewell. Apparently, they would complain and moan about NTR. Knowing this, I felt I had some secret insider knowledge. But poor old Porty and Williams were remnants of the old order. There were so many great teachers. Mr. Churchill, or CFFC, made his witty French classes fun. His ever-present Jack Russell, Shanks, named after the lavatory manufacturers, I believe, also attended every class. Mr. Chapman taught geography, but his skill at cricket was by far his most important asset to the school. His size made the cricket bat seem tiny as he effortlessly belted six after glorious six high over the boundaries. Mr. Johnston, the French teacher who ran the school shop, or buzzer as it was known, a corruption of the Indian word bazaar, would ensure that we knew precisely how much money we had in our accounts. When we inquired into whether we could afford the item we wanted, he would reach across the counter with both hands. With one hand, he'd tug our hair so that we couldn't pull away, and with the other, he'd raise his knuckle in preparation for a blow in case we got the answer wrong. You had two pounds last Saturday, Stuttard. You bought an Airfix model last week for two shillings and sixpence. So that leaves you how much? I would hesitate and struggle for the answer. Then he would beat out the answer on my head, one blow per syllable. One pound, 17 shillings and sixpence. I confide in you that even as I write this, my mind becomes cloudy for fear of getting the answer wrong. It was a terrifying but useful lesson in personal finance. Thank goodness for decimalization, which came in a year or so after I started the school. Mr. Langdon, or DML, was a music scholar of impressive ability. He was also the choir master. I'm not sure how, but I remained in the choir my entire career at Summerfields. I felt a kind of loyalty I could not betray. He had a ravenous appetite for music and flayed at the school organ with magnificent gusto, working pedals, stoppers and keyboards simultaneously. The air from the organ 
was still then provided by hand. One of us choir boys was detailed each week to heave wind into the organ bellows via a huge wooden lever in the vestry. The musical piece we all loved the most was Bach's Toccata in D minor, which he would play as the exit music from the end of term service. It symbolized the sudden release from incarceration. His other favorite was Toccata in F by Charles Marie Widor. Years later, at our wedding, we had it played as our exit music. It still sends a shiver of excitement down my spine. DML was an undiscovered genius. Classical music was his passion, but he guided us just as easily through Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat as Gabriel Foray's Requiem. He also patiently tolerated my project work on the rock opera Tommy by The Who. Mr. Bell, JLB, was a Latin teacher so red and round that he looked like he might burst at any moment. He had refulgent blue eyes that bore right into you. His face was apoplectic and so chubby that it was difficult to tell whether his expression was friendly or fierce. They call me Bellum. Do you know why? He snapped. Because it's Latin for war, do you see? He explained alarmingly. He was the assistant headmaster. He was the only master who could treat NTR with contempt and get away with it. He oozed power and self-confidence. He could converse as easily in Latin as English. There is a famous scene in the life of Brian in which a Roman legionary, played by John Cleese, gives the hapless Brian a lesson in Latin grammar while twisting his ear painfully. Many a schoolboy of the 60s and 70s can identify with this scene. It must have been a standard scare it into him method of teaching Latin given at teacher training college in the 20s and 30s. So evocative is this scene of Latin lessons with JLB that I wonder if the authors might have ever witnessed him in action. We learned Latin through pure fear of making a mistake and incurring his wrath. He bellowed and fumed at our mistakes. How dare you, he challenged, wild with rage at what he implied was an intended insult if we made a mistake. He would scream if we accidentally declined incorrectly. The complicated sentences he would invent for translation made us perform grammatical gymnastics of the tenses. The Romans, having been captured by the savages, would have been eaten had the centurions not rescued them. As we grew older, we realized how much he enjoyed the irony of his world, insisting on perfection in a language dead for so many hundreds of years. Initially, I did not understand the humor of Bellum, but I came to realize that to know him was to love the man thoroughly. His classroom was on the ground floor, next to the croquet lawns, and beyond to the cricket pitches of the first 11, with its red and white pavilion and its thatched roof. In the summer, with the windows wide open, his voice faded out as I tuned in to the vibrations of lawn mowers and gardeners manicuring our lovely grounds. Bees buzzed in and out of the open windows, and I would be dreaming of playtime and games. Suddenly, Bellum would scream out an impossible question at me to bring me back to reality, or at least his ancient version of it. 
Bellum also ran a cricket team he fondly named the Old Stagers. I was their captain one season, and for that he was a tiny bit more lenient towards me in class. We were a team of capable but not excellent cricketers. We would never make the first or even the second eleven, but we were decent. He recognised the opportunity and set up fixtures by the score with other schools. I loved it. We were the most motivated and team-spirited of all the teams because losing carried no shame. But for one spellbound season, we never did lose. Much to the irritation of the better teams, Bellum's old stages became the toast of the school for that unblemished season. He cut a comical figure whilst umpiring, wearing his white jersey stretched over his enormous belly and draping the bowler's jersey over his shoulders. His sharp blue eyes would glint as he held up an index finger and barked unequivocally, OUT! At practice, he would bowl at us fiercely with an extraordinary underarm action. We were amazed at the speed and accuracy he could muster. He was also a bon viveur. He would hang grouse or pheasant for weeks in his kitchen, getting them perfectly high. Then he would invite us to share his wonderfully prepared gourmet food. To be a friend of Bellum was a true privilege. Nick Aldridge, NEA, returned to the school a little while after NTL took over. He had taught there before. As an old Summerfieldian, he had an instinctive knowledge of the school. Unlike other new masters, who always took time to fit in, NEA just got it right from the very beginning. He was an English teacher, and the most skilled I came across in my entire academic career, even though I read English at university. He had a Shakespearean-style beard. His blue eyes smiled and encouraged me. To me, he embodied Arthurian nobility. There was a song by Genesis at the time from an album called Foxtrot. One particular verse captures Mr. Aldridge for me. A carved oak table tells a tale of times when kings and queens sip wine from goblets gold, and the brave would lead their ladies from out the room to harbours cool. A time of valour and legends born. A time when honour meant much more to a man than life. And the days knew only strife to tell right from wrong through lance and sword. Honour was a concept he taught unthinkingly. He was a skilled craftsman in the art of English. He was not afraid to write for us and have us evaluate his work. I admired his skill. I recently discovered that one of his poems was read at the official celebrations of the 200th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar. I am not surprised. But he was much more interested in our work than his own. He could tell when real effort had been made or if corners had been cut. He appreciated our offerings for all that they were worth, and much more. He created a bond between pupil and teacher. Often people will fondly remember a particular teacher from their school years. Summerfields had so many for me, but if I had to pick just one, it would be Nick Aldridge. 
It may shock some to learn that boys at a posh prep school like Summerfield's engaged in any vices whatsoever. Surely, cricket, rugby and scholarly activities were satisfaction enough. Well, of course there is little difference between boys of 13 the world over. Matthew Waddington had introduced me to cigarettes, probably at the age of 12. I had managed to obtain a packet of Benson and Hedges gold, and I smuggled them into school. This was a thrilling challenge to the system. Something of the rebel in my brother had rubbed off on me too. I suspect that I may have been the only boy at the school at the time to have cigarettes in my possession. I confided in my two best friends, Henry Pittman and Casper McLeod. Casper was up for it, and we sneaked in the occasional smoke whenever we dared. As my time at Summerfields drew towards a close, I was dormitoried high in Mayfield House, in a room fittingly known as Hosanna. It had a bay window curtained off at night, making a convenient little room behind the curtain. For whatever reason, I would sometimes sneak behind this curtain and attempt to write poetry by the light of my Pifco torch. I would relax, staring over the expansive school grounds. These were private moments. I would ensure that all the other boys were asleep. One night, well after midnight, I was behind the curtain writing, when the rascal in me thought it would be fun to have a cigarette out of the window. There was no one around. It was summer. Everything was still. I could see quite well by the moonlight. I lit up and leaned out of the window to smoke. I cannot have enjoyed cigarettes much then, but I was feeling a sense of my own freedom. To my complete shock, the dormitory door opened. I was caught like a rat in a trap. But the light did not go on. Footsteps came directly toward my curtained-off hideout. I hurled the cigarette out of the window moments before the curtain drew back. Stuttard, why are you up at this hour? It was the familiar voice of Mr Aldridge. I knew that all was lost. I reeked of cigarette smoke. That alone was an offence for which the ultimate punishment of expulsion would surely be applied. Worse still, no self-respecting public school would accept a boy who had been expelled for smoking. I was due to join my brother at Harrow the following term. I felt sick with anguish and regret at my stupidity. I was writing a poem, sir, I replied honestly, if incompletely. I see. Can I have a look? Mr Aldridge went on. I handed him my scribbles and he studied them hard by the light of my torch. Almost half-heartedly, he sighed. You know it's far too late to be writing poetry. He handed back my... I know. I'm very sorry, sir. Off to bed now, he said with some sternness and left the room. My heart was thumping with fear. He knew that I'd been smoking. The next morning, I was unsure if it were to be my last at Summerfield's. Would I be shamed, disgraced and made to leave? What would Mum say? I had let her down. I had let everybody down. I was so stupid. He surely would have told NTR by now. 
I had an English class with Mr. Aldridge later that day. I was dreading it. I sat down timidly, not daring to look directly at him. Mr. Aldridge started the class by asking, How is our midnight poet? This was clearly a reference to me. I lifted my head in shame to look at him. To my amazement, I saw he was smiling at me and nodding approvingly. I'd released a lungful of long-held air and smiled, shaking my head with downcast eyes in amazement. He knew the meaning of rectitude, and in that moment, he taught it to me too. My final few terms at Summerfields were fairly accomplished. The school divided into four houses, or leagues as they were known, Case, Congreve, McLaren and Mosley. These were not actual houses, but served to divide the boys into groups for internal competition. I was in Case, as had been my brother, father, uncle and cousin. Eventually, I became head of Case, an honour over which I was a little suspicious of my mother. The school had recommended that I stay on for an extra year as I was so young. My mother had wanted me to have as much time as possible at Summerfields with my brother Peter, so had sent me off when I was not quite eight. All other boys had already turned eight, but mum had persuaded the school to take me early. By the age of 12, the normal leaving age, I was very young for my year and very small in stature compared to my peers. So, the school suggested I wait another year before going to Harrow. Could there have been a glimmer of fear that another Stuttard could fail his common entrance? I will never know. They heaped honours on me, and Mum was very satisfied, telling everybody inaccurately that I was head of school. When I finally left Summerfields, I was full of awe and wonder for Harrow but I was also very sorry to leave dear old Summerfields. Now, I treasure the time spent there after Stedman. And even he, in all his terror, stood for some significance in my young life. But my greatest debt of all is to Nick Aldridge.